Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, we are closing out our guardrail series. These 10 statements are guardrails for our church that we created to help keep us on the path that we believe that God has for us. And so these last weeks, we have been talking about each of these guardrails. It's just just talking about the culture we hope to foster and create and protect. And today was the last sermon in the series, and we're talking about this guardrail, this final guardrail. Take risks to reach people for Christ. Take risks to reach people for Christ. Now, we all have a different relationship to risk. I know there's some of us who are highly risk averse and i know some of us like find risk invigorating and adventurous i'm just curious where you all are on that scale you know like if you were to identify am i a risk taker am i a little frightened of risk i i personally i used to love risks i was an adrenaline junkie i have ran with the bulls i have jumped trains when i needed a check to see if a battery still had some juice i would choose to lick the end of it. Anyone else there? Risk taker? I have, I have filled a, sweat, a sweatpants outfit with 20 pounds of uncooked ground beef and gone to a dog park for the fun of it, just to see what would happen. I am not afraid of risks. But then I got older. And the older I got, the more this voice started getting the microphone in my head. And the voice constantly would say the same thing, ask the same question over and over again. And the question was this, are you sure it's worth it? And over again, when I would come, come across a risk, I would hear that voice. Uh, just a couple months ago, some friends and I, we went snowmobiling in the Grand Teton National Forest. And while I saw my friends go 65 miles per hour in open fields, while I saw them go straight up sheer mountain cliffs, there is that voice. Are you, are you sure that's going to be worth it? Because while they were seeing the fun, I could see an avalanche waiting to happen. In this open field, I could imagine a creek that's just underneath all this snow waiting just to ruin a trip. And slowly, this voice 
has had and so for me oftentimes in those places my goal is just how about just not die like they can have those fun they can take that risk i'm just not gonna die on this trip now many of us struggle with taking risks yet if you read the stories of jesus it seems as if christ lived with a different standard it seems as if the invitation to follow jesus inherently had risks If we were to pick up our life and follow after Christ, it would have to be willing to embrace a certain amount of risk. Now, this is why the the calling to follow Christ is so challenging for us. Oftentimes we think about us following Christ as like us receiving hope and peace and mercy. But oftentimes, if you were to read the stories of Jesus, Jesus invited them to follow him away from people's comforts, away from their security, away from their sense of control. And this goes completely against the grain of our day and age today, where we seem to value and prioritize security, safety, and like the mirage of control that we think that we can have, our comforts, predictability. I'm actually reminded of a moment with Jesus that that Jesus had with his followers. They had seen how Jesus had had loved people. They had seen how Jesus had lived. And then in the midst of that, he stops one day and says, okay, now it's your turn. And you just know as a follower of Jesus, they were shocked because they saw Jesus do the impossible. And Jesus said, now it's your turn. And this was his instruction. He said this, share this message. The kingdom of heaven is has come near heal the sick raise the dead touch the unclean drive out evil spirits does that seem like a challenge (laughs) would that feel risky for any of us hey go out heal the sick raise the dead send out evil spirits and share that the kingdom is coming near many of us would go "Who, who are you talking to But Jesus even went further than that. Jesus even said the how. How are you to do this? Okay, this is the plan. You can't take any money with you. You can't take a change of clothes. I'm not giving you a roadmap or a plan. You're not going to be guaranteed of where your place you're going to stay, the lodging, how you're going to be provided for. You're going to have to trust me. You see, Jesus sent people to do the impossible and they were under-resourced, under-supplied. Do you think this felt risky? <laughs> of course. Why would Jesus do this? Well, Jesus wanted to change their minds. Jesus wanted to change their hearts. It seemed to me in my life that the sw- some of the sweetest things in life, some of the most rich, purposeful things of life exist outside our comfort zone. They exist outside our control. We know you've experienced this when you've gone into places that felt risky and you come back home and your heart feels more full, whether it be a mission trip or some sort of experience that you knew it took courage. And after, afterwards, you know you experienced something sweet in life. I think Jesus invites us to follow him into risk, not because Jesus is entertained by us and our failures. It's not that Jesus is an adrenaline junkie or he wants us to be miserable. It's just that Jesus wants us to value certain things more than our comforts and our control. Jesus invites us into a life of risk-taking, gospel-centered, good risk-taking because Jesus wants to change how we value the things of this world. 
St. Augustine, he once said that the problem with humanity is not that we don't care, that we, that we don't love the wrong things. It's the fact that we just love things in the wrong order. He called that disordered loves. When we have our loves and our affections in the wrong order. So like, for example, there's nothing wrong with loving our comforts. There's nothing that's wrong with loving a sense of, uh, of peace that we have, or provisions that we have, safety and security. But we can't love those things more than the call of Christ. We can't love our comforts more than seeing other people who are in need, cared for, provided for, to experience mercy and love. When that exists, then we are, we are living with disordered loves. So what might Jesus have this value greater than our sense of comfort, security? Well, to, oftentimes to get a snapshot of Jesus' heart, he would tell stories. He would tell parables. And that would give us a snapshot of what the kingdom is like, what Christ's heart was like. And oftentimes those stories would begin like this. The kingdom of God is like. And then he would tell this story, this little, this little parable that would give us just a, a picture of this different type of economy that Christ was trying to establish, a different kind of kingdom that was countercultural. In our scripture reading today, we find two of those stories in Luke chapter 15. I love how this story begins. Jesus was surrounded by two very different crowds. On one hand, there's the tax collectors and the sinners. These were the people who were the furthest from the religious circle. They were the not good church folk. They were the, the most far gone. They were called abominations. They were, they were called the sinners, the outcasts, and they were treated as such. And Jesus was there. And the, also, Jesus was in the presence of the Pharisees and the teachers. These were the most uh, prominent religious leaders of that day. They were the most religious superior. And by the way, don't you love the fact that both of those type of people wanted to be in Jesus' presence? Like, don't you love the fact that the type of Jesus we're loving and serving and following, that both the religious and the non-religious are attracted to him. They are curious about him. They want to know more about Jesus. But the Pharisees took issue with the fact that Jesus was going to be in the presence of such sinners. I love the sun's coming out. You guys right now are thinking about the text fed building. You're getting more excited about shade and air conditioning. So Jesus was in the presence and of the, both of these groups, and the Pharisees took issue. And they said to each other, this Jesus, this Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were grumbling among each other. The way that Jesus was loving and leading did not make sense to them. Why? Because good religious people didn't have friendship with those who were so far from God. Good religious people, they didn't have relationships with the outcasts. If Jesus really knew, if Jesus really knew, he would send these people away and just be in the presence of good religious moral superior people like us, right? This right here it highlights what disordered loves is all about. Why? Because it's not bad necessarily that the Pharisees wanted to be pure, they wanted to be holy. But the problem was the fact that they loved that more than seeing the needs of other people and meeting them. They loved their, 
their their desire for righteousness more than the fact to see people who are seem like they're far from God experience mercy and grace, forgiveness. It's not that they love the wrong things; they're just their loves are way out of order. So Jesus wants them to have a picture of this. Jesus wants them to have a picture why it's important to be able to be willing to risk, again, that word risk, risk being misunderstood for the sake of being in relationship with people who needed mercy. And so Jesus slips into a storytelling mode. As we just heard, Jesus says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? This, this doesn't make sense. Why would you jeopardize 99 for the one? Isn't there a margin of error? Can't you just lose like a couple and keep the most? Why would, why would the shepherd be willing to risk the 99 for the one? Because Jesus exists in a different economy. Why is the one worth the risk? It's because Jesus hates losing that which he loves. Jesus hates losing that which he loves. And so the one is worth the risk. The one is worth the risk to bring back that which was lost back home, that which was uh, that which has uh, been abandoned to bring him back into the community. And so Jesus was not interested in playing it safe. Jesus found the one. And Jesus continued by saying, and when the shepherd finds the one, wouldn't he joyfully put it on his shoulders and go home the whole way the whole way there, chastising the sheep for wandering away. Just the whole way bickering about how dare the sheep leave. No, that's not what Jesus says. On, when he gets home, he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep. This is what Jesus values, friends. Jesus notices and values that which was lost to bring it back home. That which was broken is now restored. And Jesus is in this moment, he just told the story, he steps out of the story and he begins to look at this gathering that was there and says this motley crew and the religious elite probably sitting on like a middle school cafeteria, very separate tables probably. And Jesus says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and turns to me than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Again, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who comes back home over the fact that there's 99 people who don't think they need a savior. That is why it's a risk worth taking. Because heaven lights up when people who feel far from God, they know that Jesus is for them. That when someone who has been entrenched in sin and brokenness and despair, when they taste and experience the goodness of God's grace, heaven lights up standing on tables, fist pumping to the air like it's a time of celebration and rejoicing. But when one person or when the 99 people who exercise how moral and righteous they are, heaven just gives it an apathetic golf clap, <laughs> just indifferent to it. 
the posturing, the pretension, the shell. Because Jesus goes after the one who needs to come home. Jesus goes after the one who needs to be carried on his back and brought back to restoration. This is why we take risks, church. This is why we take risks to reach people for Christ, is that the reward is greater than the risk. When we actually have that picture of what happens when someone is brought back into God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, we have a picture that the reward is greater than the risk. The reward of heaven's joy, the reward of seeing someone come alive in Christ, the reward of seeing someone set free from shame and guilt and hopelessness, that reward is far greater than the risk that we have. And we know the risk that we, we often feel of that. Of what, I don't know what will happen. I hope that I won't experience rejection if I kind of share a word of mercy, give a gift of compassion. I don't know if it will be received well. I don't know if it will be abused. I don't know how they'll take it. But when we have a picture of the reward in Christ, that we see this as part of following Jesus together. And didn't Jesus take risks? I think out of the many things that Jesus did, one of the riskiest things that Jesus did was to entrust people to be his message in this world. That's one like it seems like the riskiest thing, especially those first that first community. They were literally hiding in fear, literally hiding in fear after Jesus had uh, had been crucified. And Jesus finds them and said, "The kingdom is now yours." And he gives them everything that they need. The message of Christ, the example of Jesus' life, and the spirit that is empowering them to go outside their wrists, to see the kingdom expand in this world. And the Christian movement has continued to expand in this way. The church expands not through a posture of power, of comfort, ease, or popularity, the kingdom of Christ spreads through ordinary people who are willing to take risks so that other people could experience the goodness of Jesus, that which we have experienced. When you know what it's like to be carried over your shepherd's shoulder, to be brought back home, then you have enough reason to go into this world to see Jesus' love and mercy meet those who feel like they're abandoned and alone. This is how the kingdom spreads. It's when people like you have eyes to see when that one person's gone, when that one out of the 99 is hurting, and you have enough compassion and courage to take a risk to bring about peace. It's when people are willing to cross over ethnic lines, political lines, social lines, racial division, to share that Christ's love is impartial to the lines that we use to divide ourselves. The kingdom of God is spreads through love-inspired risk-takers who are willing to reach people with grace and mercy. Not to make people a project, not to have an agenda to have them cross the, the whatever political aisle or whatever aisle to become like us, but actually to have people be reached for Christ's sake, in Christ's name, and for their good. So how can we live this out as a church? Well, I think first the question is, are our loves in the right order? And that's like a a really important question. The commitments that we have, the priorities we have, the loves and affections, are they in the right order? Do we cherish our safety and our security and our control over fighting for the dignity and the value of all of God's children? 
when we see someone suffer, when we see someone wandering away from the flock in sorrow, are we compelled out of love like the good shepherd to leave the flock and go after the one to show them how it is to, to return home? We need examples of, we need to see this because it's happening in our midst. An example I have is a friend of mine named Lola. When Jen and I were first married, we, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, 15 years ago in two months, three months, something like that, we lived in East Austin, and we loved getting on our little moped Vespa scooter and putting around town and finding different, like, you know, different shops and stores. And I found my way to this Cajun restaurant. And uh, on this sign outside, it said, Nubian Queen Lola's Cajun Food. Has anyone been to Nubian Queen Lola's? It's long gone. Okay, there's like a good, a good percentage. It's like Mardi Gras just threw up in her store. Beads everywhere. Gospel music blaring from the kitchen. The smell of spices in the air. This small little kitchen, this small little restaurant could not be more than 600 square feet. And uh, this, there was always a woman in the, in the kitchen because she never trusted anyone with her recipes. So she never hired anyone. It was just her. And uh, Lola was that woman. Her face was weathered, but she had this radiance about her. I think it was helped by the fact she had like four or five different facial piercings. Just radiant. And uh, three things I quickly found out after Lola and I became friends is, one, this woman could cook, like for real. Two, that she loved Jesus, like loved Jesus, knew Jesus, and loved him. And three, Lola was the pastor of that neighborhood. She didn't need a church. She didn't need an ordination. She was the pastor of that neighborhood. Lola would close down her restaurant on Sundays and open up church in the back little dirt, dirt lot behind her store. Whenever people would come in, and I saw this firsthand, people would come in, they would order food, and Lola knew that they were in a hard, hard place. She would just give them the food and not receive any money. That she cared for people. And it was, took a long time for me to realize that when her restaurant shut down, Lola would pull out a bed in her kitchen in a restaurant, and that's where she lived. She didn't have a home. She was so compelled out of radical generosity that she lived there in that kitchen. I would take college students at that time. I was a college minister. I would take college students to go and serve along her. We would uh, hang out with her, uh, do different things in that neighborhood. And along the way, we would just pepper her with questions. She would tell us stories she would tell stories about making bread and having juice and going around the neighborhood because she knew where people stayed. She knew where the people who were on the streets, people who were addicted to drugs, where they would go and stay. And she would take that bread and that juice. She would climb underneath pier and beam homes and find men passed out with needles still on their arms. And Lola would give that bread and that juice and she would say, I tricked them because they didn't know, but they were taking communion. She would tell stories like that, and I remember one day a college student said, what makes you do this, Lola? And Lola said, have you ever heard that story about that woman who lost a coin? Have you ever heard that story about a shepherd who was going after that sheep? She said, I, the stories are about treasure. They're about treasure. You see... That woman was willing to flip her house upside down because she treasured that coin. That shepherd was willing to leave the 99 because 
He treasured that sheep. She said, and you know what my treasure is? Is that man underneath the home. And I'm going to flip this neighborhood upside down until I find him. You see, friends, in God's kingdom, in Christ's economy, things are flipped upside down. And when we follow Jesus, we begin to treasure things differently. And when we begin to treasure things differently, risks take on a different size. When you begin to treasure what Jesus treasured, who cares if you're misunderstood? Who cares if the gifts of generosity doesn't, is not received in the ways in which you want it? Because you're going after what Jesus treasured. Lola was living into a different kingdom because she valued what Christ valued. And you are willing to leave behind comforts and take a risk when you begin to love things differently. You see, Lola was willing to do that because she was the pastor of Rosewood and Chacon. This is my neighborhood, she would say. And I just wonder how our city would be different if you and I would say the same thing about where we are. This is my neighborhood. These are my neighbors. I find myself responsible for their flourishing, for their goodness. These are my coworkers. It's my responsibility that they would experience God's goodness and nearness. This is Christ's treasure in my midst. I feel a sense of responsibility that they could experience Jesus. Not like I have to muster up strength. I just got to be faithful to what Jesus does, what he's, what he's done in my life. We would do well to take on Lola's perspective wherever we are that we would place our treasure where Jesus treasures and we bring about a surprising kingdom because the kingdom of Christ looks a lot like an eighth grader's coach who looks for ways to bless, uh, bless this, those children with words of affirmation and love. It looks like someone who's seeking to be an ally for people in the city who are suffering and neglected and marginalized. It looks like a businesswoman who has an eye to see when the one out of the 99 is just not there. Maybe they're there, but emotionally you can tell that they are not present physically, mentally, even physically, that they're just not there. And you have a compassion that this is, these are my treasures, just like Christ would treasure them. It looks like a friend who knows when someone is looking for an answer to why we are here and that person is willing to take the risk to share, can I tell you about my Jesus? Can I tell you about my Savior? That he knows you and loves you. That feels risky, but friends, if we begin to see those people as the treasure that they are in Christ's kingdom, the reward's greater than the risk. It feels risky to step in the fray, but when we love and treasure the right thing, Risks become smaller and smaller, and Christ's delight becomes bigger. So we have this guardrail for us so that we might be compelled to be love-inspired risk-takers. So may we follow Christ who is willing to leave the 99 to rescue and redeem people like you and me. May we value that which is found in God's kingdom, all of God's beloved children who are enough of a treasure to take risks for Christ.